I see these memes on Instagram or Pinterest that say, you know, rules for great living, stop comparing yourself to others. And I'm like, there's so much nuance and so much more to say in that because it is human nature for us to do that, especially because so many things rely on metrics, on numbers, that it's impossible not to compare ourselves to others. What I want you to try to do is to manage it. This is your Kick-Ass Life Podcast, episode number 315. This is the Your Kick-Ass Life Podcast with Andrea Owen, a no-BS guide to self-help and badassery. Because ladies, let's face it, life's too short for it to not kick ass. And here's your host, the girl who serves it up straight with a side of crazy, Andrea Owen. Hey there, ass kickers. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. I am so glad that you're here. If you are someone who gets my emails, if you're not, you probably should because they're great. (laughs) But anyway, last week I sent out an email telling you all that January 2nd, 2020 was the second birthday for How to Stop Feeling Like Shit. I also posted about it on Instagram, so you might have seen it over there. But over 170,000 copies have been sold, and more than half of those are the audiobook version, which blows my mind and makes me so happy. I had such a great time recording that book. It was quite an experience. But at any rate, it fills my heart with immense gratitude knowing that so many of you have read the book or listened to How to Stop Feeling Like Shit. And some of you have actually done both. I wanted to read you this email that I got recently from a listener of the book. And please know that when you send me an email, when you send me messages on social media, I do get them. I do read them. I am not able to answer every single one of them. But this one jumped out at me and I wanted to read it to you. This comes from uh, a reader, I guess, or a listener of the audiobook named Amy. And she says, Dear Andrea, I've overthought reaching out to you a thousand times, which has stopped me from doing so since I'm a perfectionist to a fault, but what it all boils down to is thank you. I stumbled upon your book, How to Stop Feeling Like Shit, at the very best slash worst time. I was on my way back to Washington from my grandfather's funeral in California, and I needed something to listen to on the drive home. The funeral wasn't the hardest part of my life at that time. More so, it was the upheaval of a life I thought I knew into a life I was trying to make sense of. I had recently, finally, physically separated from my husband, moved across the country to a doozy of an opportunity, then moved back up to where I started from. My career had been in a swirly eddy land for forever, bucking up against responsibility to four four-legged kids who were now in my sole custody, which is no small dependency. I was at a time of spiral and low, feeling more alone than I ever had. So your voice, such a clear voice of camaraderie, reality, and reason, slapped me across the face in greatness. It also happened to be right during our weird Upper West Coast snowmageddon this last winter. Funnily, but not funny at the time, I was driving right into it, which I'm not the greatest snow driver, stressing and white-knuckling the whole way. There you were, talking your talk as I was gripping the steering wheel like a lifeline, first in a car lineup of slow-moving trekkers just trying to get home, too, too petrified to even turn off the pep talk. You got me through. Thank you. Actually, if I take heed of your teachings... I got me through with your help, which for me is a big thing considering I am awful at asking for or accepting 
help. I would like to say my problems ended there, but this year has been a road full of challenges, seemingly for all of us. Thankfully, I can say I'm still going strong, still trying, still living, and hopefully soon flying with amazing people like you. Thank you, Andrea. I can only hope to be as of much help to others as you were to me. With love, Amy. This email, there's so many things in this email that I love that she has pointed out. And, you know, Amy's life is probably similar to yours, whether you have gone through something like that recently or a long time ago. If you haven't, then hate to break it to you, but you probably will. Something happens where a wrench gets thrown at you and your life more or less gets turned upside down. I know it has absolutely happened to me. And I think that what I wanted, one of the things I wanted to point out, and this is really what happened to me as well, when everything fell apart in my life, I had to sort of pick my head up and say to myself, all right, what and whom am I going to listen to at this point? Because clearly what, what, what I was doing before wasn't working. Maybe you just like weren't listening to, to anyone. For me, I was never listening to the good advice that the people around me were giving me. I was only sort of 50% listening to my therapist, still trying to control my life and make things happen the way I wanted them to happen. I don't know if that was the case with Amy. But my point is, is that you have to get to that point where you're like, okay, what is resonating with me that I really feel like is going to help? And also, okay, snow, I can't. <laughs> we used to live in Utah and driving in snow, it causes me massive anxiety. So I so get it. The second thing I want to point out that she says that I love so much, she says, actually, if I take heed of your teachings, I got me through with your help. This is so important because what I want more than anything from all of you is that you understand and accept that you are the hero in your own life. There is no teacher, no author, no therapist, psychotherapist, life coach, guru, expert. Nobody is going to be the one that saves you or fixes you. You don't get better through osmosis or being close to these people and just thinking that it's going to happen magically. I tell you all the time that you're the one that has to do the work, but even before that, you have to believe, even if it's just a little bit, even if it's just a crack in the door, that you can be the hero in your own life, that you can be the one who gets you through. You are going to have a lot of help from other people. It's going to be books. It's going to be mentors. Maybe it's coaches. Maybe it's the people around you that you love and trust. Yes, you are going to have help. You need help. You can't do it alone. But at the end of the day, you will get you through. So thank you, Amy, for sending that. Thank you for taking the time to send it to me. These messages mean the absolute world to me a hundred percent so thank you for those of you that have taken the time to leave a rating and review on this podcast who have reviewed my book or both of my books on amazon or goodreads i appreciate you so much all right what i wanted to do in this episode now that it's been two years that how to stop feeling like shit has come out is i wanted to walk you through a handful of the chapters, really more of the most common ones, and by common ones, I mean the ones where people, you know, I talked to a lot of people about this book, and they said, 
I resonated with all 14 habits and behaviors, but these were the ones that really stood out to me. And I, I, you know, as I'm looking through the book and looking at the tools that I gave in there, I noticed that I kind of jumped over a couple of things that I could have talked more about. It's just the nature of the beast when you're writing a book or maybe it got edited out or whatever. So in this podcast episode, I'm going to go more in depth on a few things. And I have a gift for you. If you remember, it was available for many, many months afterwards, but if you proved that you purchased the book, you got a bonus PDF that was a printout of all of the questions at the end of each chapter in the book. So it was nothing brand new, but it was a workbook that you could print out and have because you know I'm always telling you how important actually doing the work is. So now if you just jump on over to the show notes, yourkickasslife.com slash 315, and you can grab it there. Look for a yellow button where you can download the workbook. You don't need to type anything in like your receipt and everything like that. Just we'll need your email to send it to you and you can download the PDF workbook. All right, so let's talk about numbing out. Did you know that that was going to be one of them that I'm talking about? You might hear me flipping through the book here. In the beginning of the numbing chapter, which is chapter three, titled Checking Out, Are Your Numbing Mechanisms Still Working for You? I mentioned in the beginning of this chapter that that numbing was my habit of choice, probably my biggest habit of choice. And I say being in long-term recovery from an eating disorder, codependency, love addiction, and alcoholism has given me a handle on numbing, at least what that beast looked like in my own life. I wanted to go into a little bit more depth about it because I think it can be helpful for people to recognize themselves in someone else's story and numbing. And because I had a plethora of behaviors that I did, it wasn't just one thing for me. And and I do believe that it it typically isn't just one thing for someone. They might rely on one thing for a while. Maybe yours is binge eating or it's spending money for a few years and then you move on to something else. That's pretty normal as well. So for me, it started with codependency in my late teens and early 20s. And what's also interesting as I look back on my life and and connect the dots, I know that a lot of people, their addictions or, you know, addictive be- like behaviors start because they had a traumatic start in their life. They had a traumatic childhood and this is how they cope. I didn't have that. My trauma started around the time when I was 18 and there was uh, several things that happened back to back in succession. I do believe that's really when my behaviors came up for air. And but but I also wanted to point out that I was never taught any coping mechanisms and I don't think that very many people ever are. So no wonder we do this. No wonder we choose these behaviors and habits that do work for us for a while until they don't. And you know, that's why I titled this book How to Stop Feeling Like Shit because when they stop working, when we're doing them, the numbing out, the isolating, the people pleasing, etc., then they start to feel like shit. So when, when my codependency started, it very much was control. I wanted to control other people. I wanted to control situations. I wanted to control the outcome. And it manifested as micromanaging. It manifested as, you might call it bossiness, but it really went far beyond that. I got massive anxiety when I wasn't sure 
you know, things were going to go my way. And I will say to an extent that that's normal, but where the struggle really came about for me was in my personal relationships, especially my romantic relationship at the time. I wanted to fix him. I felt like if I can fix him, then we will be better. Then I will be happier. All of my, the answers to all of my problems were in that. If I can just change him, then I will be happy. That was my, was I was going to say that was my focus. That was my obsession. By and large, that was my obsession was changing him, was fixing him, and it was a disaster that went on for years and years and years. And love addiction for me, and I think that a lot of people struggle with this and might not know it. So again, I'm not a therapist. I'm not a doctor. Please Google it and read as much as you can about it if you think that that's might be you. Love addiction, I do think that there is some separation with sex addiction. So mine really was more so on the love addiction side. I looked to men and relationships and falling in love. That was my high. That was my addiction. I fell madly in love with people, with men. And I was absolutely obsessed. Again, what happens to our brains during the quote unquote falling in love stage is normal to be hyper-focused on someone, mine was to the extreme. And it was also a shame cycle where I would go out with the intention of meeting someone. And keep in mind, like that whole time I was in a long-term relationship, so I was cheating on my boyfriend. Uh, I would find someone, I would hook up with him, I would feel high and fantastic for that evening, or sometimes the relationship would go on for a handful of weeks, maybe. I think the longest relationship was maybe a few months. And then would feel incredibly ashamed for my behavior. I would call myself all the names. I would call myself a slut. And all of these horrible names feel like a terrible human being for what I was doing. Try to justify my behavior because I knew he was also cheating on me. And the crash from that was severe. The shame that I felt for my behavior. So what I would do to seek relief was go out and do it again. So it became this perpetual cycle of shame and relief, shame and relief over and over and over. That went on for several years. And then I stopped that when I got engaged to my first husband. And then when we – also during that time, I was in and out of an eating disorder. So I controlled – this one – that one was different because it really wasn't my behavior of choice I really only slipped into my eating disorder when things were really severe. And I would control the amount of calories that came in. I would try my best to control the amount of calories that came out with exercise abuse. I was obsessed with the number on the scale and I was obsessed with the size of my clothes. And it was horrible. It was a horrible way to live with that obsession and addiction. And when my life fell apart in 2006, I healed from a lot of that. I went to 12-step programs. I started listening to my therapist. Things were going so much better. I was really starting to understand why I was doing all of those behaviors, which I really do think is such an important step. Like a lot of the battle of it is, is connecting the dots as to why. That's the awareness piece, right? 
and not yet though diving into the root of the problem, which for me was intimacy, trust, connection, vulnerability, dealing with the shame in my life, learning shame resilience. I didn't really have any of those tools yet. So my drinking picked up right around that time. And then in 2011 is when I got sober and that's really when I sort of picked my head up and was like, oh, okay, these are the actual coping mechanisms that I need to do in order to just deal with life, right? And I talk about a lot of those in How to Stop Feeling Like Shit. That's your values. That's communication, setting boundaries, those types of things. But again, it, it really, if you kind of take a step back and look at the meta view of why I was doing all of those things. I could not handle, I I had a belief that I could not handle life on life's terms. It was too hard. It was too scary. It was too painful. I did not trust myself enough that I could walk through it without some kind of armor on, without some kind of behavior that I was doing compulsively that made me avoid all of the hard, painful, scary things. So for me, it wasn't until... I erased all of those behaviors in my life, which trust me, it was fucking painful. Like I went kicking and screaming at times. But it wasn't until then that I really picked my head up and and said, oh, okay, this is, I, I actually can do that. Like I can do this. I can walk through this and be okay and stronger for it. That was kind of the bonus that happened. And just really, really trusting myself and gaining the resilience. Okay. So I wanted to point out something from that chapter, from the numbing out chapter. And in that chapter, I give eight different tools for learning how to feel your feelings because that's what the bulk of walking away from our addictions is about, is is learning to trust ourselves and actually feeling the feelings that get thrown at us when we're living our lives. So tool number six is about getting curious around your feelings And here's what I say in that part of the chapter. This is especially helpful if you find yourself judging your feelings and making yourself wrong for having them. There's information in there that has the opportunity to help you, but only if you get curious first. You all might remember Jessica Graham was on the podcast a few episodes ago, and I had mentioned that I've worked with her this year in processing and untangling a lot of shame around sex and all of those types of things and it's been massively uncomfortable massively uncomfortable for me one of the things that she does and I think I'm actually pretty good at getting curious about my feelings but one of the great things with working with a coach or a mentor or a therapist is when you are looking at them and she and I work on video chat together, is that she can see my body language and she can tell in my voice when I'm really uncomfortable about something. So she'll ask me about it and really force me to slow down because I have the tendency, and maybe you're like this too, I have the tendency to just sort of bulldoze over those types of things and I I talk really fast as it is. So it's just my nature to be like, okay, what's, you know, let's move on to the next thing. I'm, I'm done with this. This is uncomfortable and let's just, you know, who's next? And what she has done is just asked me about it and invited me to get curious about some things. So in areas that you struggle about this, maybe you have a buddy or you tell your therapist specifically, you kind of tell on yourself. I think that's such a great thing to do. Tell on yourself and say, if you see me jumping over these, 
will you ask me to get curious about it? Will you ask me how my self-compassion is? Because therapists aren't mind readers and it really helps if you tell them where your sticking points are. And hopefully you can start to do that for yourself. So back to working with Jessica and having her stop me to get curious about some of the really hard emotions when we were having these conversations about past relationships that I had had and past feelings around the relationships, because that's really what we were talking about, is it was incredibly helpful for me to stop and slow down. She also asked me what was happening in my body so, so I could get to better know where these feelings were living in my body. All for the when hopefully that I can become self-aware to be do to do this on my own to realize like oh my gosh I have this feeling in the pit of my stomach and just get curious about it just let it live there for a little bit that's the part that I hate it I mean nobody wants to sit there and be uncomfortable I don't either but if we just have some compassion for ourselves and let it sit there and not make it mean anything not make us make up stories that we are wrong for having it in the first place, that we need to bulldoze over this, that we need a drink or to buy something online or to do whatever it is that we want to do to get out of these feelings. I cannot tell you enough times that once we learn how to actually sit with them, not make us wrong for having them in the first place, the faster and easier it will pass. It's like lube. I guess, for your feelings. It just moves through faster. Just trust me on that one. All right. All right. I'm going to kind of go backwards with this next one. Chapter two is go away and leave me alone. Isolating and hiding out isn't protecting you. This is another one where y'all told me, raise hand. I do that one a lot. That whole chapter is about finding your compassionate witness. It's about empathy and having those close connections. What I want to do with this particular chapter is go over the questions on page 39. And if you have the printout, the PDF printout, we're in chapter two. Again, each of the chapters has about five or six different questions at the end. So you can take action and integrate all of your learning. All right. So question one at the end of this chapter is, do you feel like you hide out and isolate when things get hard in your life? If so, why? And if I had all of the room in the world, I would have gone into more depth with each of these questions, but I didn't. So I'm going to do it right now with this one. I would love for you for this question is to ask yourself, what are you truly afraid of? Let me let me ask the question again. Do you feel like you hide out and isolate when things get hard in your life? If so, why? If you don't, then bravo, my hat's off to you. I think that you are doing a fantastic job. If you reach out to the people, as Brene Brown tells us, have earned the right to hear your story and you're met with what it is that you need to be met with, whatever that is for you, whatever kind of support you need, then hallelujah. For those of you who do hide out and isolate when things get hard in your life, I would love for you to dig a little bit deeper in this and ask yourself, what are you truly afraid of? Give me worst case scenario. What are you afraid of? Are you afraid that they'll reject you if you do reach out to somebody and tell them what's going on? Are you afraid that they'll laugh at you, that they will shame you or tell you that you're wrong or tell you 
how could you have even gotten into that place in the first place? Like, what are you, stupid? Are you afraid someone's going to say that to you? Are you afraid someone's going to tell your secret and gossip about you? Maybe you've had that experience before. Are you afraid that you'll be seen in a negative light? You're like, no, Andrea, I wasn't afraid of any of these things until you mentioned it. No, but these are probably floating around in your mind, even if they are sort of in your subconscious. And I want to point out something, too, that I just said about the fear that we'll be seen in a negative light. This is incredibly common, and this circles back to one of the tools that I teach in my signature program, Mentorship Masterclass, that is so incredibly helpful once you get underneath it and can be quickly aware of it, and that is your ideal and unwanted identities. So we all have these in every area of our lives. Being afraid to be seen in a negative light is our unwanted identities, Nobody wants to be seen that way. We have them at work. We have them in our romantic relationships. You probably have them as a parent, if you're a parent, um, as as an adult child. We want to be seen, you know, as our best self. And we fear being judged, being seen a certain way that is negative. And it's not that you're going to turn everything on its head and only be seen in a positive light all of the time because then we'd be talking about perfectionism. It's really getting all of this out, purging it out on paper, finding out what you're truly afraid of because a lot of times when you look at it, you're like, this would never happen if I tell this person. Or if it does actually happen, say you share something with someone and they do end up telling someone about it. That's happened to me before. I have also, you know, been rejected by someone, you know, you share, you get really vulnerable and you share something and the person either like doesn't have time for you or whatever it is that they do that feels like they're rejecting you or abandoning you. That happens to the vast majority of us. What I want you to start to think about is, can I bounce back from that? What are the tools that I would need to have to be resilient, to take care of myself during that time, to lick my wounds because you can do it, okay? Questions two and three I'm going to combine. Do you have a compassionate witness in your life? If not, can you think of people who have potential? If so, who are they and what makes them your compassionate witness? The third question from this chapter is, Do you need to do a quote-unquote cleanup of your friendships and work on intentionally nurturing one or two of them that you have currently? I want to just point out something extra around these two questions, and that is to ease into these conversations with your compassionate witness. And when I say compassionate witness, just as a refresher from the book, this is the person who's earned the right to hear your story. This is the person where you have built and nurtured a friendship. And sometimes these ebb and flow and we need to circle back with people and put in an effort in our friendships. But I want to point out that in Brene Brown's research, just research around trust in general, that trust is built in small increments over time. That's how it is organically and naturally built. So I wanted to say that because it isn't this magic thing where we suddenly snap our fingers and have these magical friendships. It would be so amazing if that's the way it was. But it takes hard conversations. It takes putting yourself out there. It takes being empathetic and compassionate and 
being there for the people in your life. And if you feel like they're not showing up for you, it's going to take you having a hard conversation with them. Having that talk where you say, hey, I love and appreciate you so much and I deeply care about this friendship and I have to tell you I've been feeling neglected and I know that you're so busy and I really want us to have this fantastic friendship and here's my request. Those kinds of conversations, those are difficult and necessary if you want to have these connections, if you want to feel supported, if you want to feel like you have that friendship that we all want. The fourth question is, can you commit to practicing empathy? How will you do that? I want to say something that I mentioned in the book, but I wanted to remind you of it, is that you don't need to practice empathy on everyone. You don't. Nobody has time for that. No one has enough emotional energy for that. Compassion is enough in a lot of situations, especially. So empathy is called for when someone has shared something with you And it is a friendship that really, truly matters to you. So hear me out on this. That is if, you know, it's your best friend or your sister or someone where the friendship is growing or your partner comes to you and is being very vulnerable. So that's when empathy is great. If you are sitting on an airplane with someone, or no, I take that back because sometimes you're on an airplane for a long time. If you are, this happened to me before, you're at the community pool and someone you don't even know their name, you're sitting on the steps with your kids playing and there's like another person there and they just start jumping in and like telling you their life story and they tell you something really hard. If you don't know that person and it's not something, I think we've kind of all been, like, and I've been that person too who's like overshared. It's not totally necessary for you to practice empathy. You can be compassionate And you can say something like, wow, that sounds really difficult. It's amazing that you got through that. You don't have to launch into this big empathetic conversation with them. You can still be kind and compassionate. So you might want to do a quick Google search. I don't know what's out there (laughs) on compassion versus empathy because I don't want everyone to think that they have to run around being empathetic with everyone. Because some of you are that person just that has that kind face or whatever where people share really big stuff with, you don't always have to practice empathy all of the time. All right? Compassion and empathy, two different things, but very similar. They're like sisters, but they're not twins. The last question in that chapter is, if your friendships are struggling, how can you take care of yourself regarding your inner critic? I hear that a lot because I do group programs where there there might be a handful of women in that group who really have these amazing friendships and they've had this friend since elementary school and they still meet every other week for dinner and text each other every day and and not everyone has that. So if you find yourself going into compare and despair and feeling terrible about yourself that you don't have these friendships, watch for your inner critic. Inner critic is a different chapter in this book, but I want you to take care of yourself during that time because it can be really triggering when you're reading this chapter on isolating and hiding out. And I'm telling you to go find your compassionate witness and you feel like shit about it to watch out for your inner critic. Again, trust is built in small increments over time. It's going to take some time and it's going to take some effort. All right. The last chapter I want to talk to you about is the compare and despair chapter. And I was flipping through this and 
kind of did a little chuckle. It's chapter four, by the way. The chapter title is Compare and Despair, The Never-Ending Mindfuck. And on page 62, I say, let me start by saying that I would never in a million years tell you to stop comparing yourself to others. The key is to manage it. Amen. (laughs) I know I wrote it. But I see these memes on Instagram or Pinterest that say, you know, rules for great living, stop comparing yourself to others. And I'm like, there's so much nuance and so much more to say in that because it is human nature for us to do that, especially because so many things rely on metrics, on numbers, that it's impossible not to compare ourselves to others. What I want you to try to do is to manage it. So I'm going to give you a very personal example of this. All right, when the explosion happened, that was Rachel Hollis's Girl, Wash Your Face, which I think every life coach in the world was like standing there watching it in astonishment, which by the way, I think she's fantastic. She had sold, I think she posted on Instagram that she had sold 250,000 copies of Girl, Wash Your Face within the first few months of it coming out, which is astronomical for an author. And... I went down the compare and despair so fast. I was like, what the fuck am I doing wrong? Like went down this whole rabbit hole of that I'm doing it wrong, that I'm not a great writer. I will never sell that many books. And it was such a short time period. That whole song and dance. Here's the thing. Because of course I do it too. We all do. What I do now, it's very similar to inner critic work. It's not that it never happens to me. It's that I can recognize it very quickly about what's happening. So what I do now is I recognize it very fast. And by very fast, I mean within a few minutes. And it's not that it just happened, happens once. You know, these we might compare and just go down compare and despair with several people, different people in one day. Depends on what's going on that day. What I do now very quickly is First and foremost, especially when it's something like that, especially when it's another author, something very similar to what I do, and I know how hard it is in this industry, I celebrate the fuck out of it. I'm like, hell yes, woman. I think that's amazing that you have done that. I know she's worked her ass off. I know that it was not easy path. So I celebrate it as much as I can. And then I get curious about what it is that I want, like what's going on over here that I'm seeing over there? Like, what are the stories that I'm making up about that? Getting curious about what's going on for me and then also getting down to like brass tacks about it. Do I really want to do, you know, if someone is like an elite athlete and you see that person on social media and this person, I don't know, is like running a mile and four minutes or something and you do people do that right that's like a thing people run miles in four minutes oh my god um maybe you want to do that and you aren't even close what I would ask you is do you want to or are you willing to do what it takes to actually get the thing because I know I don't I don't want to train that much. So sometimes it can help just looking at the reality. And and the answer might be yes. The answer might be absolutely yes. So use that as inspiration to get to where you want to go. I also remind myself to stay in my own lane when it comes to things like this. 
my son is a swimmer and he's on the swim team and we're having to talk to him about that a lot because we're, we watch him during swim meets and he's looking over to make sure that, you know, he's not the last one. And I tell him over and over again, I'm like, you are slowing yourself down when you're looking over at that other person. And it is so true in so many aspects of our lives. If we would just keep your head down, stay in your own lane, focus on your own training or career path or whatever it is, whatever the goals are that you're wanting to do. The last thing I want to say about this is on page 64, I talk about become intimate with your success. I think that we sell ourselves short so much. We really, really do. One of the assignments that I give clients sometimes is to go back especially if they're in some kind of like a service provider or even if they're makers, read the emails from people where they have told you how much they love your work, your testimonials, your positive reviews, positive reviews from work, emails from your boss, whatever it is, birthday cards from your parents telling you what a great kid you are, whatever it is that you have access to still, and I hope you keep them. So many people are uncomfortable reading those. And that's the assignment I give to some of my clients. And I'm like, go back and read those slowly. Read them out loud. That is an exercise in getting comfortable with your strengths, getting comfortable with your talent, getting comfortable with your accomplishments. We severely lack this so much I wish that we could have what is that saying like have as much confidence as a mediocre white man or something like that it's astounding to me how much we run away from getting intimate with our success listing our accomplishments being proud of what we have done tooting our own damn horn that's what I want you to do on the regular with your friends I heard about I think I've mentioned this on the podcast before. I heard about this group of women. I can't remember if it was a friend of a friend or what, who have a group text where, I don't know if it was every day or every week, they send selfies to each other. And I want to say like sometimes they do like topless selfies or like in bathing suits or whatever it was to each other in this all-woman group text and they celebrate the shit out of each other. Just telling them how amazing they are, how hot they are, all of these things. And I was like, wow, what if we all could do that? Every single one of you listening right now, you could have on the regular where you feel you have, first of all, the group of friends who you trust enough to do that with and who will support you and cheer for you like no other. That is my wish for you in 2020, that you have that kind of support, that you start with doing it yourself, that you get intimate with your successes, your accomplishments, and that you get curious about things like compare and despair. Get curious about things like your feelings. All right? All right. I covered a lot in this podcast episode, and I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, please rate and review the podcast. I would so appreciate it. We do read those. Thank you so much for leaving them. And also, if you haven't already, before I recorded this, I was listening to the very first episode of Not Another 
podcast, not another self-help podcast, the podcast that I'm doing with Amy Smith. And I was laughing. I, I have to admit I was laughing at us. I think that we're so funny in this particular episode. So at this point, a couple of the episodes are out, notanotherpod.com. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your shows, Not Another Self-Help Podcast. And we would love it if you followed us on Instagram over there, Not Another Pod. Thank you, Ask Kickers, so much. I'm so grateful for your time and that you choose to spend it with me. And until next time, I will see you out in cyberspace. Bye-bye.